1: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. Among the most frequent demands made of Islam and Muslims today is to become more moderate. But what counts as moderate and who will decide so are questions with less than obvious answers. In her timely and politically urgent new book, Beyond religious freedom, the new global politics of religion, Elizabeth Heard, associate professor of religion and political science at Northwestern University, explores the powerful global networks that seek to regulate and moderate religion in the name of promoting religious freedom. Through a careful examination of the discourses and activities of a range of state and non state actors in the US and elsewhere, Heard demonstrates. That international regimes of religious freedom advocacy actively participate in the labor of defining and generating particular notions of good and normative religion that privilege particular actors and institutions over others. However, as Heard brilliantly shows and argues, such attempts to canonize good religion, which often corresponds to the articulation of religion most amenable to US imperial interests, remains thwarted and unsuccessful. This is so because the global industry of producing good, moderate religion cannot come to grips with the messiness and complexities of lived religion that is unavailable for neat, digestible, and ultimately misleading, generalized categorizations. In short, this book represents a profound and meticulously documented argument for the unavailability of religion for projects of moderation, division, and bifurcation into good and bad religion. Heard assembles this argument by discussing the discourse of what she calls the two faces of faith in international religion circuits, the politics of religion-making in international religious advocacy programs, overseas religious engagement programs sponsored by the U.S. government, and the construction of religious minorities as endangered corporate bodies. Beyond Religious Freedom is as mellifluously written as it is analytically delicious. It will make an excellent reading for undergraduate and graduate courses on Islam, secularism and modernity, Middle Eastern politics, religion and politics, and on theories and methods in religious studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Elizabeth Hurd. Hello, Beth, how are you doing?
0: Doing well. Thank you. And you?
1: Very well. Well, as uh, I was saying before we uh, began our conversation, began recording our conversation, rather, uh, really such a satisfying read. Uh, and uh, yeah, you know it's one of those books which uh, is not only uh, conceptually rigorous and theoretically profound, but it's also politically really urgent and important. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, we have a, a tradition of new books in Islamic studies, Beth, uh, that our first question is always biographical. Uh, could you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar? Uh, and then perhaps a bit about how you came to write this particular book.
0: Sure, of course. Um, thank you. It's so good to be here, and I appreciate your kind words about the book. Uh, I had no intention of becoming a scholar, becoming a professor. I was really interested in graduating from Wesley and seeing the world and maybe working in foreign policy in some capacity, but really learning about other people, and other places. Um, I ended up spending a year abroad in France and then a year back in Washington working in uh, population and reproductive health for the U.S. Agency for International Development, AID. Um, That led me back to get my master's, which you need to have in order to advance in policy circles. And I had my master's in IR from Yale. And I found myself um, just kind of almost physically unable to go back uh, to Washington. There were just so many big questions that had been opened up for me around the politics of development, politics of modernity, questions of political theory. Um, And kind of the assumptions that underlie the whole project of what we call development. So this led me back to grad school and eventually into the politics of secularism at Hopkins. Um, On the other part of your question, how I wrote the book, which is, a bit of a separate issue um there's a number of ways to answer that there's it could take quite a while, but one way to explain it is to i think is to talk a little bit about the cover of the book, which is something I get a lot of questions about because I don't talk about it in the book rather intentionally actually um but on the cover uh you see a photo of the desert with a sand berm that's way off in the distance, and in the foreground, you see these little handmade flowers that are sticking up kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know haphazardly out of the sand. Um, And this berm, this big wall that you see in the background was actually built in the 1980s um, by the Moroccan government. During uh, the war against the Polisario, this is the Western Sahara conflict, and of course, the Moroccans wanted to divide Western Sahara, which they control, uh, from the Free Zone, which is controlled by the the SADR, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. So, there's this really interesting contrast for me in this photo between the desolation of the wall and these cheerful little flowers with little decorated notes attached to their stems, um, and this is part of a basically an artist exhibition called "For Every Mind a Flower," and the artist goes around and plants these flowers as an anti-landmine protest and there are landmines scattered all over this no man's land on both sides of the wall which effectively keeps uh keeps people apart keeps families apart um, as well so i really like the visual contrast in this image between uh the i think the forms of politics in here state politics represented by the wall and this kind of uh improvised you could say uh, popular protest movement and for me this sets the stage in an interesting way for the book's analysis of the global politics of religion and that there's this unbridgeable distance between the berm, the wall, and the flowers that are up close that kind of echoes the book's argument um, in the sense that I am trying to draw attention to the gaps between these big constructs of religious governance, um, like religious freedom, uh, for example, uh, that are created and put in place by states, and the lived experiences of the people that these big constructs are supposed to be governing and protecting and in some cases reforming and redeeming. So it's that tension, that disjuncture between these big social engineering projects and the lives of the people that are subjected to them that really interested me here. And I wanted to kind of play with that and probe that and press it further. And this wall in Morocco was literally built to divide and control the Sawari people. And the political projects I write about, I've discovered, are also in many ways divide and discriminate, surprisingly, often in the interests of people who are in positions of authority, and that's both political and religious.
1: Now, before we get into the specific themes of the book, uh, could you briefly describe uh, for us uh, uh, the main point or the main argument that you try to assemble in the course of this book?
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think what we've seen, particularly uh, since 9-11, but not exclusively, I actually go back before that in this book, um, is we've seen new, you might even say unprecedented, that's debated, um, but new levels of state sponsored religious interventionism overseas. And, um, the book is a study of those projects of this new interventionism. It's a study of the forms of knowledge and power that sustain them, that make them possible. And also it, It contemplates at certain moments the ways that these projects are actually reshaping the world we live in. So I'm interested in this book very specifically in religion as a category of legal and political intervention. Um, And by that, by religious interventionism, I'm talking very specifically about state-led projects, government-led projects to support moderate religion or what's called good religion and to suppress or sideline Bad religion. And this is this two faces of faith argument that organizes um, some of the the early part of the book. And also, I think, organizes how many people today are talking about religion. So we have the U.S. and a lot of our uh, allies kind of coming together around this notion that we have to protect uh, free and tolerant religion through religious freedom, through interfaith dialogue, through the protections for minority rights. If we want to free societies, to emancipate communities from uh, everything that's bad, whether it's violence, economic deprivation, gender discrimination, whatever it is. So in this view, which I think has come uh, to exercise quite a strong hold on the public imagination these days, the right kind of religion, when it's recognized and supported by states, has emancipatory potential. Moderate religion is sort of the treatment, the cure all. And we see this public international commitment now, uh, to cultivating this good religion, this free religion in the U.S., um, but also in other parts of the world as well. Uh, my book focuses mainly on the United States, but I also do talk about the European Union, about Canada, uh, this is also prevalent in the UN and many NGOs, international organizations. It's a huge field. And the, the, the reigning assumption is that religiously free states and societies will oppose terrorism, support the free market, and be inclined toward democracy. So my my suggestion is that this is kind of a powerful governing consensus that we need to understand. And uh, we need to understand how it's shaping both our religious and political worlds and the ways in which they're entangled with each other. Um, we have governments who see it now as their job to produce good religion and to discipline bad religion. So we're getting sort of uh, projects and programs and policies where people's religious lives are being nipped and tucked to meet this global demand for tolerant subjects, um, and I'm interested in the financial resources, the forms of expertise, um, the bureaucratic offices and institutions that get created in order to put these uh, these uh, kind of governing se- consensus into action, to sort of implement it or operationalize it as the government says. Uh, and It is all of these activities that I'm referring to in the subtitle of the book as the new global politics of religion.
1: Now, one of the things that really struck me. Um by reading this book, Beth was just the uh, the enormousness of the networks of people who are behind these kinds of projects uh, overseas or within the U.S. and different countries, and the kind of this, the networks that that you really uh, uh, uncover in this book and and uh, talk to us about those networks in great detail. So uh, this one category that keeps up coming keeps on coming up in the book is the idea of expert religion or these people who are seeming. Uh, experts who try to produce and generate a particular kind of religion, which is this tolerant moderate religion and so on. Uh, could you give us a sense, before we get to the specific um, themes of what they do with this expert religion, could you give us a sense of who are these people and institutions and networks? Uh, what is the scope that we're talking about here? Uh, uh, who are these people and institutions uh, that are behind this thing called expert religion? Could you say a bit about that category?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, Well, first of all, what I'm trying to do really is uh, trouble and kind of take apart uh, the category of religion. Uh, for people who are interested in questions of law and governance. And in order to do that, what I'm doing is kind of disaggregating the category and trying to make it a bit more messy. And it's an, it's always an always – these are heuristics, and, of course, it's kind of – an imp, these categories are imperfect in a lot of ways, and they also blend into each other. But what I do is I try to set up these three categories, which you mentioned, the expert religion and official religion and lived religion, um, in a sense in order to help us try to understand the ways in which um, – Religious practices intermingle, shape, and are also shaped by law and history and politics. And it's a way to try to get a grasp or get a hold on some of the ways in which that actually unfolds in the world. So what I'm aiming for ultimately is a more integrative approach to religion, law, and society in which we're thinking about religion is always already part of history. And I think expert religion is is a piece of that picture. As you said, the way I think about expert religion is – Religion is construed by experts who generate um, policy-relevant knowledge about religion. And this can be very, this is a really capacious category, right, as you're suggesting. Um, this could be political officials. This could be experts who are, uh, you know, academics. They're scholars. They're uh, people who have who have some sort of uh, re- carry some sort of religious authority and are able to speak as experts from a particular tradition. Um, this this is a really broad network of people, um, but what I'm thinking of here is uh, a very specific, uh, I would say, normative discourse or form of normativity that I think has become. And it's become kind of the default position among many of these experts today. And that is this uh, narrative of religion as something that can be either a source of uh, morality and community and cohesion and even freedom or or, and (laughs) as something to be feared, as something that's a danger that needs to be contained, that needs to be repressed, that needs to be uh, kind of remade and refashioned. And I think that the dominant kind of form of expert religion that we hear today um, talking about the U.S. Um, and in Europe as well, North America, is this narrative of uh, good religion, bad religion. So this narrative has, I, in my view and my argument in the book, it's it's displaced or it's partially displaced this idea that religion has been privatized, the kind of conventional secularization narrative. And instead, we're hearing something very different, which is, Governments need to support good religion and they need to either disrupt or tame bad religion overseas, but also here at home to some degree. And I think that the good bad religion narrative is itself a powerful form of expert religion that is being kind of it's circulating through these networks of uh, kind of self-designated experts. um, And it's become kind of a a sort of, like I said, a default position. It's a very interesting shift that I've seen take place in public discourse that I think is worth tracking and worth understanding uh, how it works, who's a part of it, and what are the consequences for both politics and religion.
1: Now, to bring us back to something that you mentioned earlier, and I think that's one of the key themes of this book, is this uh, discourse of what you call uh, quoting someone else. Uh, the two faces of faith, this idea that you have the kind of the good religion that has to be promoted and has to be sponsored, and then the bad uh, religion. And, you know, uh, for uh, students of Islamic studies, of course, this is a very relevant idea because of the whole notion of the good Muslim, bad Muslim, that seems to be in circulation in all kinds of different uh, circuits uh, these days. So could you say a bit more about this discourse, this idea of the two faces of faith and how it has been used in these international relations circuits, Uh, to generate a particular understanding of what counts as acceptable, normative, proper religion, and then what gets excluded as religion that is not acceptable. Could you say a bit more about this discourse of the two faces of faith? Um,
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. So I think what's so compelling about the two faces of faith is that it, in so many ways, it's, it feels, it's so ubiquitous and it feels so obvious. And it's if you start to watch the news or read the newspaper or listen to people Um, talking about religion, many times they just kind of fall back into this narrative and into this logic. And I think that's because it's so simple. It's Mm -hmm. compellingly simple. The idea is simply to, on the one hand, identify and empower peaceful moderates, and on the other hand, to marginalize and reform intolerant extremists. So this model, this two faces, good religion, bad religion, Um, it's very easy to understand. And I think this helps to explain why it's so powerful. And for me, what I'm really interested in studying ultimately is these kinds of, um, normative discourses that are so powerful that they come to seem completely natural. And this, this is just how people think and talk about religion right now in many different public fora today. So when I'm, when I'm, when I'm talking about the two faces, I'm specifically thinking here about governments, about think tanks, um, foreign policy pundits, Uh, people you see on the news, self-proclaimed experts, and they're all kind of trafficking in this baseline unspoken assumption that if we could just empower the religious moderates and if we could just reform or maybe crush, um, although that always comes kind of quietly at the end, uh, the violent extremists or fundamentalists, then we would have freedom, we would have peace and toleration, we would have rights, and it would all just kind of spread across the globe unimpeded. And and, and this logic is actually—I mean, it's—it's it's something to hear it on the news. It's another thing. It's actually being institutionalized. Um, and this is done differently, and I don't want to suggest that there's one sort of hegemonic form that's kind of taking over all of these bureaucracies. There isn't. Um, this shifts. There are different degrees. There are different elite sensibilities and different governments around the world that, of course, inflect and kind of inform how this takes shape. But if you look at, for example, the U.S. State Department's Office of International Religious Freedom or their, they have a newer office now, the Faith-Based Community Initiatives Office, uh, you see that this logic becoming institutionalized so that it really it starts to shape how people are uh, are not just understanding the world, but responding in concrete ways and ultimately shaping the world. Um, There are new offices that kind of embody the two faces popping up pretty much every day, and others get closed down. Um, In Ottawa recently with the the new Trudeau government in power, they closed down their Office of Religious Freedom and actually merged it into another office. So things shift, and it's a shifting terrain, of course, but it is interesting to try to map um, the the power and the pervasiveness and the uh, of that discourse of the two faces uh, as it sort of moves around the world in these networks. One of the main assumptions underlying that discourse that I really want to call into question in this book, because I want to go beyond just diagnosing and also to kind of have a critical edge. Uh, and that assumption is just this notion that these experts and officials and foreign policy decision-makers sitting in these bureaucratic offices, and particularly the, quote, religious ones, that they know what religion is, that they know where it's located, they know who speaks in its name, and they know how to incorporate religion into foreign policy. And I find this just astonishing. I mean, the the degree, sort of the the hubris that goes into these assumptions. And and they do a lot of work. They allow these practitioners and pundits and also some academics, we have to say, to stake and to make a very important claim, which is that we can quantify religion's effects, we can adapt religion's insights to solve our international problems, and we can bring religion's representatives into our decision-making processes to, you know, solve the, to address the pressing matters of the day, and that's exactly what they're doing, and people are saying, oh, finally we have this corrective to secularism, you know, there was a, we were pushed out, religious actors, religious voices were quarantined. Um, no longer, we're coming back into the public stage now, or in the limelight, we're relevant to world politics because religious actors are going to contribute to relief efforts or development or peace building or whatever is, needs to be taken care of. And so good religion then becomes this sort of powerful agent of transformation. And the state becomes, um, you know, kind of taken up with this project uh, to ensure that peaceful religion triumphs, right, over its intolerant um, rivals, And I think we see this narrative uh, across the board now in a lot of international efforts, such as um, human rights advocacy and transitional justice, um, humanitarian and emergency relief, uh, development programming. Um, and then, of course, on the other side of the two faces, we should make sure to mention the other side, which is a series of projects that are consumed um, by equally urgent efforts to uh, reform or eradicate intolerant religion and make sure it's not projected internationally. Um, So here, religion becomes an object of, or whatever's identified as religion, becomes an object of securitization and a target of state violence, and that's legitimate state violence. So this kind of religion, of course, is associated with the violent history of the European past, and the rest of the world's religious present. Right? So the intolerance associated with uh, certain forms of what is today called religious extremism. So Religion is not only no longer private, but it's taking on specific new forms of publicity. And it's those forms of publicity that I'm interested in um, in understanding in this book. Um, And we see these initiatives that are pairing uh, religious institutions and religious leaders with government offices we see new centers and new academic programs for interfaith understanding um, coming uh, onto the table pretty much every day. There's a new one. So we have a lot of uh, political will and a kind of an army of international public authorities that have a lot of money that want to know how to do this, how to promote free religion. And the two faces gives everyone a compelling answer to this question. So we have certain religions, certain forms of certain religions that need to be kind of Uh, rescued from secularist condemnation or marginalization and brought back into the spotlight, whereas we have other forms of religion to be disciplined and reformed. And so everyone knows what religion is, who religious actors are. It's obvious who they are. They're distinguishable from secular actors, and they've allegedly been excluded. So my work, of course, questions all of these claims and the political projects that follow
1: from them. So let's continue this line of thought a bit uh, by talking about these international religious freedom advocacy programs that you talk about quite extensively uh, that, that try to spread uh, this idea of religious freedom for communities around the world. And one of, one of the consequences that you mention in, in the book and you argue is that it also privileges certain people within a particular faith community as being the experts or the, the, the good people within the community and others are marginalized. And oftentimes uh, the barometer or the the uh, main uh, method through which what is good and what is bad is determined is what most suits either American foreign policy interests or what suits uh, sort of a euro-american notion of good religion anyways so could you say a bit more about the sort of the consequences and implications of these religious freedom advocacy programs uh again for how this category of religion is approached reoriented and molded uh in accordance to what best, best suits these uh, these programs and and the people who run these programs that's an
0: excellent question it's a very big question um mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're talking both here about conceptual spaces and political spaces. And and, in different ways, each of those domains have been, I think, constrained by the dominance, even the predominance of the two faces paradigm. And also its expression through these different projects that I've been talking about, including international religious freedom advocacy and this notion that we need to promote good religion under law as sort of a panacea solution to all that ails us. Um, There's a sense... Today, I think that if we talk about religion and politics, we need to talk about uh, religious freedom or religious violence or both. And I think one of of the ways of answering your question is to say that um, some of the political and conceptual spaces – uh, that are being closed down by that exclusive focus on freedom and violence are precisely those spaces that I think we need to think more with and to kind of open up um, to, to the conversation. So if we think about religious violence, for example, what's happening when we declare religion or religious difference as the to be the cause of a particular act of violence is that we are obscuring a much bigger and inevitably much more complex picture, including, uh, you know, in many cases, uh, historical contingencies and questions that just get completely effaced. And what we have instead is this idea that a lack of religious toleration is the reason that the violence is occurring. So the explanation for violence is they're doing this, they're violent because they're religious and they don't like other religions or they're intolerant. And of course, the minute we say that, which I think so many people are are really rushing in a kind of unthinking way to say, I think we're making ourselves absolutely incapable, or even blinded, um, incapable of seeing the the ways in which broader, uh, often state-sponsored, institutionalized, racialized, politicized contexts in which violence and discrimination are actually occurring. So. Religion is, of course, embedded in that picture and interwoven in complex ways, depending on the context. But I think we need a much broader lens to think about how religionized, racialized, and nationalist politics, for example, become um, intertwined. And an example that I give in the book um, is the current situation of the Rohingya people of Myanmar. And I tell a very different story about their situation in which I intentionally try to de-dramatize the religious element without ignoring it while at the same time drawing attention to the uh, series of other factors that are in fact driving the violence against them, including, uh, including coming from the state. Um, and I'm working on a piece right now actually for foreign policy to distill that argument, um, for a broader argument and a broader audience and try to make the point that we need to actually, we need to not only sort of ask different questions, but we need to, Sort of really hit the reset button before we, we start diagnosing situations as instances of religious violence and orienting our responses then, our policy responses, our international political responses around the, the, this thing, this problem, this alleged problem of intolerance or a lack of religious freedom. So I think we're, we're absolutely missing the boat. And we're not only missing the boat, but we may actually be, um, inadvertently, uh, Enabling some of the some of the uh, other uh, perpetrators of violence, in this in this case, um, the Burmese state and other actors that have an entrenched interest, actually, in marginalizing some of these communities, and have for a very long time. So, I think in order to understand the world around us and to respond effectively, we actually have to rethink um, in very uh, serious and sustained ways. Uh, some of these political constructs that we are over-relying on in order to understand what's going on around the world in Myanmar and elsewhere. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, one of the things that I really uh, appreciated and liked uh, in, in your discussion was that you showed that clearly in the post-9-11 context, there has been a proliferation of these uh, you know, religious engagement programs which have been sponsored by the U.S. government, but you also showed that these have a much longer history. Uh, that goes well into the fifties forties, and so on um this idea of trying to you know going into a country and trying to reform them in in particular ways and you also show this um this tension that some of these activities may even have been constitutionally problematic in the u s context itself within the u s but they were okay as foreign policy tools and techniques so could you could you say a bit about what are some of these key overseas uh, religious engagement programs uh, that are sponsored by the U.S. government today? And, you know, how do they serve as conduits of this attempted religious reform in different countries? Uh, how does this work? What are these programs?
0: Sure. So, I mean, there there are all kinds of different examples. One of them that I write about in the book um, is REL Harmony, which um, was a program... It sounds like a dating service of some kind, but it's actually a program that was sponsored, uh, well, it was co-sponsored by a whole bunch of different groups. So one of the main sponsors was USAID. And the idea was, of course, to bring interfaith understanding and interreligious tolerance uh, to Albania in the 1990s. So, of course, at the bottom of this was um, worries about extremism. Um, and the idea of this program was to create... Um, social, political, and legal conditions. So, to kind of remake and reform um, Albanian uh, legal structures and political structures and kind of societal understandings, uh, to ensure that any form of extremism that might start to show its face in Albania would wither on the vine. So, when this program got put into place, um, it became clear right away that the reality was much more complex. And I go into a little bit, not a lot, a little bit of detail on this program in the book, but. What it opens up for me is this question of what does it entail, both politically and religiously, for governments to quote engage with top religious leadership as all of these programs claim to do. This is the religious outreach, religious engagement move, which is a very much, uh, very much a part of uh, the the push to. Uh, to remake, to reform, to engage, to bring religion back in and to make it part of the sort of portfolio of government activities. Um, When the U.S. officials uh, go around courting these leaders, as they did in this REL Harmony program in Albania, um, what happens very clearly is, They're forced to discriminate um, so that non-traditional religions or um, even unorthodox versions of protected religions are simply not at the table. Um, And they even acknowledge this in their own report. And I think in some ways it's interesting for me to to read these government reports and read through all these documents because it's interesting to see the people who are involved in these projects – um, struggling with the very terms in which the project itself has been framed, and I see them kind of struggling against it, and kind of trying to wriggle their way out of some of the constraints that are imposed by, you know, this idea that we need you need to go and engage with religious leaders from Albania's religious groups, and you need to get them in an, you know, an interfaith setting and make everyone you know happy and kumbaya moment and all of that. And what they actually found is that. These religious leaders were pretty supportive of the interfaith initiatives, but they had very different views when it came to including members of non-traditional religious groups in the activities that were being funded by Rel Harmony. So, I mean, there is this very clear, uh, you know, kind of takeaway from this project. And I think others, there are many that, you know, I discussed some of them, there are many that are modeled on it and that um and that it was modeled on that are quite similar in shape and in form. And all of them operate on this uh, really naive, actually, assumption that all religions are just out there and they can be treated equally. And, of course, this completely effaces or it masks um, the power relations involved uh, and the fact that, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the religions of the majority, of the ruling class, of the U.S. allies, of the you know, reigning corporate interests or whatever other power broker is on the scene are inevitably going to carry more political weight than others. So if you're a less favored group for one of those reasons, you're much more likely to be categorized as a cult or an extremist. Um, and, you know, the the people who are involved in these projects are shockingly very upfront about this. And I found this, I found this absolutely fascinating in my kind of ethnographic moment in that, for example, the The former, she's now former U.S. ambassador uh, for international religious freedom, who uh, Suzanne Johnson Cook, she actually spoke openly about these dynamics during a workshop that I attended at the Council on Foreign Relations, which was an annual workshop that the council sponsors and that's attended by U.S. religious leaders and scholars. And she actually said there are areas in which the U.S. government has muscle, and her example was the promotion of foreign religious leaders. And, you know, to me, this is just fascinating. You know, how do we square these kinds of statements with domestic traditions or efforts, uh, repeated, failed, some would say, efforts at disestablishment domestically? And I think this is one of the questions that's really worth thinking about further, and I'm hoping to do some more work on this and thinking about this, because there is not an easy answer. And you're absolutely right that these projects go way back. And so we can't just simply sort of tag 9-11 and say, oh, that's the cause of everything. There's a much longer and richer and more complex history uh, that has to do with the way the, the U.S. or the way the American project itself is kind of understood in a domestic context or a home context or in a broad context. And there's a really interesting disjuncture there that a number of us are trying to think about
1: together now um, going forward. Let me just mention in passing before I uh, uh, ask the next question that there is a very fascinating discussion in the book uh, for the benefit of our listeners uh, on the religious chaplains which who are hired and the limits of what they can do and cannot do and uh, and, and at what point uh, does uh, their uh, activities begin to uh, encroach on the constitutional uh, limits uh, that are provided. I think that was a very interesting and fascinating discussion. But I wanted to uh, shift our attention to, I guess, one of the last themes that come up uh, in your book. And I think it's in the last chapter, which is these efforts and movements to protect religious minorities uh, overseas, uh, different kinds of uh, r- minorities. and And you show that how these religious minorities are presented as these endangered corporate bodies whose freedom is under threat, and hence they have to be now rescued and and provided their their due freedom, so to say, so could you say a bit about the implications of these efforts to protect uh, religious minorities uh, and especially by focusing on this one case study that you very brilliantly examined of the Alawis in Turkey and and different ways in which uh, they have been talked about and they have been uh, 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 the, the attempts to sort of rescue them from from uh, uh, the uh, majoritarian impulses and, and injustices. Uh, alleged injustices against them. So could you say a bit about that thing?
0: Sure, of course. Um, this is such a complex story. Uh, trying to think about the best way. I mean, I should put a caveat up front, I think, probably, and just say that, um, you know, these these claims for freedom, for, <clears throat> for religious freedom, particularly made by individuals and groups uh, in places like Turkey and elsewhere, they are uh, they are completely understandable. And my aim in, in doing this kind of work that I do and kind of trying to problematize some of the assumptions that are going into the category itself of religious minority and the politics that drive those assumptions uh, are not meant as an indictment against individuals who are making claims um, based on whatever legal means they may be able to get their hands on in order to protect themselves or their families or their communities. So I want to be very careful, and I am... I hope, I hope fairly careful in the book to always couch my critique by saying, you know, I understand that in a lot of circumstances, people need to go to war with the tools they have and whatever legal protections are available, you're going to use them. Uh, and having said that, having said that, you know, as a scholar, one of the privileges I have is the ability to pull back or step back and think Uh, In a more hopefully sustained way about the forms of subjectivity, both um, individual and collective, that get cultivated and get instantiated um, through the law when groups are conjured and protected legally as religious minorities. Uh, It's not inevitable that this is how we order our societies, um, and for me, the alloys of Turkey were such a fascinating case for thinking this this problem, um, precisely because they kind of hover at the boundaries of our modern distinctions between um, secular, religious, and superstitious. To use uh, uh, this trinary. Uh, as they interact with modern state-building projects. And these are just inseparable in this case. So as you know from having read the book, the Alves as a community and even as a category uh, didn't really exist. Until uh, the Turkish state was founded, they were formally constituted as part of that nation-building project. And so in taking up their case, I wanted to understand how – Um, social and religious belonging gets translated and transformed through the process of becoming legalized. So, in other words... What happens? Why does it matter if we designate groups legally as religious minorities? I'm very much focused on the law in this in that chapter that you mentioned. And I suggest that when we adopt religion as a category with all of its frailties and failings that we know so well, when we adopt that category to draw together communities or people as these corporate bodies that are seen as in need of protection in order to achieve their freedom, that this is in fact quite a risky business. And we should probably, we meaning here, anyone who's interested in and has the power to create, I mean, certainly not me, but people who are in much more powerful positions than I am, need to think again or think twice before uh, rushing out and creating these legal regimes kind of willy-nilly all over the world. And I developed this by studying these two different legal constructions of alivism: one by the Turkish state and the other by the European Court of Human Rights, the uh, ECHR. And they, these two uh, construals of alaism are interestingly premised on very different assumptions, but they both do the same thing. They both erase any indeterminacy surrounding alabism as a lived tradition. And they also bolster the role of the Turkish state and its role, and specifically in both defining and overseeing and managing Turkish religiosities, which is um, kind of at the heart of the, of Turkish secularism of like leak. And so my intention in that work, given that chapter was really just to encourage readers to uh, see this inevitability of legal protections for religious minorities in a completely different light to really question what we thought we knew about the need to um, uh, identify and protect groups in those terms. And then also to open again, a space in which we could seek out and which we could affirm other possibilities, um, other forms of identity and forms of solidarity that may have kind of slipped uh, outside of our line of vision due to this very intensive focus on the need to rescue uh, what are understood to be religious minorities.
1: So as a final uh, uh, substantive question, but um, could you reflect a bit as you do in the conclusion of um, of this book on some, some of the larger analytical uh, refinements or reorientations that you're pushing for? I, I think you're in a very interesting space in that you're writing from a uh, sort of a, a, from an IR uh, standpoint and you're actually very critical of this field itself of how it has gone about looking at religion and I think this critique as you mentioned can be can be leveled at uh, you know um, both institutions and uh, actors outside the academy and also within the academy in terms of how the messiness of religion is not is not uh, entertained often uh, and I think you're really with the major argument of showing the unavailability of religion as a category to be canonized for political and disciplinary purposes is something that you've done very uh, very sharply here. Could you reflect a bit on what are the the conceptual refinements or reorientations while studying religion that you're pushing for for folks in such fields as international relations or political studies? Uh, Could you say a bit more about the larger uh, conceptual intervention uh, in relation to the category of religion that you've sought to make uh, in this book?
0: Sure, absolutely. So what I'm trying to do is really to open up new conceptual and political spaces in which um, people who think about religion and IR can think and, and talk and um, generate uh, new forms of knowledge and understanding uh, that are less indebted to these frames that I've diagnosed as being as having become very much kind of normative in the past few decades. So, in other words, how do we move beyond the two faces of faith? Uh, I think it, there are a couple of things that have to be thought through very carefully in order to um, make those analytical refinements or reorientations, as you're as you're calling them. Um, and the first is really to just come to grips with the fact that religion never actually was excluded from international affairs, but rather has assumed very different forms and occupied very different spaces in different regimes of governance. And some of those regimes are actually described or self-described as secular. And that, of course, was the subject of my first book on the politics of secularism and international relations. I think that um, then we also have to take the next step And acknowledge, as I attempt to do in this book, that religion is not something that – it is not an entity that can be isolated. And it's not an isolatable entity, and we simply cannot continue to treat it as such. So if we move into that uh, field, if we take that assumption that religion is not isolatable – as our point of departure, we're forced into a different field of play. And this actually, this critique, as you mentioned, applies not only to scholars of politics, but also scholars of religion. So we're forced into a different field of play, both politically and epistemologically. And I think it becomes more and more clear that these attempts to single out religion as a platform from which to make law or develop public policy will always end up uh, in some form of mini-establishment, privileging some religions over others, some leaders over others, some traditions over others. Um, and this is what uh, Lori Beeman and Winnie Sullivan have written about in their volume, Varieties of Religious Establishment. So I think looking ahead, we need to... We need to find ways to embed the study of religion more deeply in social, institutional, and interpretive fields and contexts. And this means both disaggregating, but also complicating the category and considering it uh, relationally, um, vis-a-vis law, history, society, politics. Uh, What does uh, the world look like after we move beyond the ideology of separation, but also beyond the ideology of restoration? Um, Neither of those is really sufficient. Neither of those is helping us to understand what's going on around us um, politically, religiously today. Uh, We can see this, I think, right now um, in a lot of different places. But one of them that I've noticed just following the news the last few days is the the refugee crisis and the politics surrounding claims for asylum in Germany. Um, As I'm sure you know, asylum claims coming from Pakistani Christians are carrying more weight in Germany, Um, and so there's been consequently an uptick in conversions to Christianity among asylum seekers. So what we see in these kinds of situations is both politics and religion being transformed in ways that can't be disentangled. And any attempt to separate the fields of religion and politics or to simply bring religion back in misses the point, or at least half the point. Um, so for the asylum seekers, those who cannot or who choose not to identify as recognizably religious, of course, are less likely to be legally protected. We see some of the same dynamics with, uh, as we saw with the religious minorities question. And those are the kinds of dynamics kind of at the, I wouldn't even want to use the word intersection. These There's not an intersection. They're, they're completely conjoined political and religious fields, um, and I think we need to pay more attention to, and this requires adjusting our conceptual frame so that we can ask better questions to begin. With.
1: So as we're drawing to uh, at the end of our time uh, here, Beth, could you uh, tell us a bit about uh, what's the next project were you're working on these days?
0: Oh, sure. I, I'm not sure what the next book project will be yet. I'm going to take some time and think about that. But um, I've been thinking, as I mentioned earlier, a bit more um, about this uh, domestic and foreign divide uh, with regard to religion and politics. And I'm working right now with Winnie Sullivan on a joint research project, which is um, considering this, excuse me, what we're calling the inside-outside dynamic, looking at the U.S. project specifically at home and abroad and trying to better understand Uh, this uh, interesting disjuncture between domestic and foreign, inside and outside. And in that capacity, I've been writing a little bit about countering violent extremism initiatives and trying to think about ways to integrate uh, the study of religion and politics in these different spaces. Um, I'm also giving a little bit of thought this summer to how some of the arguments of this book would play out in the Asia Pacific region. I'll be going to Sydney in September for a conference that's going to be thinking through those questions. And in that region, of course, given my interest in the Rohingya, I'm particularly interested in following developments in Myanmar, which is uh, undergoing very rapid economic, religious, political liberalization. And I think that these developments are going to be really interesting to follow in the next year or two.
1: Beyond Religious Freedom The New Global Politics of Religion by Elizabeth Shackman Heard, published by Princeton University Press in 2015. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and for this uh, conversation and uh, for writing uh, such a lucid and, as I had said earlier, such a politically urgent uh, book. I was uh, really a pleasure reading your book and uh, chatting with you about it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: So this was my conversation with Professor Elizabeth Heard about her brilliant new book, Beyond Religious Freedom. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Stay well, take care, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We appreciate your time.